gather together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, the Schuster Herald Podcast, it's Superman, the Carousel Podcast, the Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen Podcast. The world's best podcast and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to the slightly delayed but fun as always 95th episode of Superman and the Bronze Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and once again we're diving back into the groovy 70s to look at Superman's Bronze Age adventures. But first, I want to apologize for this episode's delay. Uh, man, uh, 2014 is just not my year for podcasting. At least not when it comes to this show. After last episode almost being delayed because of illness and a lack of a voice and a lack of a voice, this time my computer died. Fortunately, it waited until the morning after I'd recorded the next episode of Starman Observatory, but it was making this really shrill noise that would have interfered both with recording and editing, and then the Wi-Fi didn't want to work, and so I couldn't get online to even upload anything, even if I could have recorded it, so yeah, it was just a real pain in the butt. So anyway, I got a new laptop which makes this probably the most expensive episode to produce of Superman of the Bronze Age. But do you know what helps me save some money and makes for a terrible transition? Getting my comics at My Digital Comics. An up-and-comer in the digital comics marketplace, My Digital Comics provides fans and affordable digital options for their comics and offers titles in PDF, CBZ, and page flipper formats. Offering titles from publishers like Boom, Dynamite, Top Cow, Ad House, Tomorrow's, and more. My Digital Comics Association with DCBS and In Stock Trades does more than just provide readers with an immediate opportunity to own either the digital or print versions of some of their favorite titles in the format they want. It also brings them at the price points they want. You can find My Digital Comics on the web at mydigitalcomics.com. Now next up, we've got feedback from our buddy, Russell Bragg. And Russell writes, Hi Charlie and David. Glad you were feeling good enough to put out episode 94. You sounded pretty good to me. Well thanks Russell. I was kind of bummed because I wanted to read the comics and then listen. 
Well, I didn't have Superman 313 in my collection, so I didn't even know how things turned out until your synopsis, which was great, by the way. Well, thank you. I'm afraid the next comic in my Superman collection that you'll be talking about is 319. I guess I'll have to listen even more intently so I know what's going on. I do have a question for David, and you're welcome to answer too if you want. I was wondering what his favorite DC Comics Presents issue was, and why. Also, his least favorite. My favorite is Annual Number 1, with the team with the team-up of the Supermen of Earth 1 and 2. I don't know about a least favorite. I kind of like them all. I'm getting closer and closer to getting my full run. By the way, I still don't have all the Sandman Saga comics, but I did purchase the DC Comics Library edition of, Superman, or of Kryptonite Nevermore. I still want to get the comics at some point, but at least I can fully read the story now. Looking forward to episode 95. Hope you're feeling 100% by then. Bye. Well, thanks, Russell. Uh, first off, I passed your questions on to Dave, and this is what he had to say. Hi, Russell. I have to say your question stumped me a bit, but I kind of have to go with my obvious gut reaction as to my favorite issue of DC Comics Presents and, say, issue 34. This is the second part of a crossover with Captain Marvel, and this one included the entire Marvel family, as well as Cap's villains. I mean, it was really a blast to see this team up and for the somewhat twist ending of the most unlikely member of the Marvel family saving the day. Also, how can you go wrong with Mr. Mind in a giant mecha bunny suit? As for my least favorite, that goes to issue 26, where a team-up with Superman and Green Lantern gets upstaged by the insert for the new Teen Titans. I mean, yeah, the Teen Titans bit was awesome, but I never seem to have any recollection of the actual issue itself, as far as the Green Lantern-Superman portion, and I'm betting a lot of people have the same experience, so it's kind of a non-entity for me. But I appreciate that question, Russell. Very, very awesome question. And as for me... I really haven't re been able to read all that much DC Comics Presents. I have several, but I just haven't actually had the opportunity to read through them all yet. But out of what I've read, my favorite is probably issue number 31. It features a pretty cool team-up of Superman teaming up with Robin, uh, dealing with a circus. And it has art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. And so it just it looks beautiful. Uh, the combination of the fun story and the awesome art just really make it an enjoyable one. My least favorite is issue 22 featuring Captain Comet. Mo uh, partially because Captain Comet's not one of my favorites. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, you won't be seeing me doing a Comet, Captain Comet podcast anytime soon. And I'm not a fan of the Dick Dillon art. Plus, there's a couple of huge plot holes in there that you could drive a truck through that also hurt the enjoyment of the story. So, that's mine. But anyway, thank you for your questions, Russell, and for the feedback. Uh, turns out I was 100% by the time I needed to record episode 95. It's just my laptop wasn't. So hopefully 96 will come out just fine. But anyway, um, I'm going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at Superman number 314. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. 
Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Neymar and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, Monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at TwoTrueFreaks.com. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Superman 314 had a cover date of August 1977, an on-sale date of May 2nd, 1977, and a cover price of 35 cents, and a cool-looking cover by both Kurt Swan and Neil Adams. Adams was inking it. It looks really nice. The title of the story is Before This Night Is Over, Superman Will Kill. Written by Martin Pascoe, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Dan Adkins, colored by Jerry Serpe, and colored by Jerry Serpe, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Picking up right where last issue left off, Superman is holding up Jevik, currently in the form of Jamie Lombard's dog. But while Jamie is yelling at Superman, Jevik resumes his more humanoid form. While Jamie is ignorant of this, he's suddenly stricken with the journalist's disease. While this causes Superman to review the previous three issues worth of story, he is brought out of his daydream when Steve shows up and sees Jamie unconscious on the floor. Angrily, Superman threatens to destroy Jevik, but Superman stops him, reminding him of his code against killing. Because, you know, we just had a whole big thing about that a couple issues ago. However, Superman didn't say anything about killing Jevik. See, Jevik is a Klin from the planet Tiburon. When the Klin are alive, they are 30 times larger than Jevik currently is, but when they die, it's more like a caterpillar's metamorphosis, as they shrink yet continue to, to exist. As such, Jevik is already dead, 
However, just as Superman is about to pulverize the alien, elsewhere, Amalak, who has somehow survived last issue's explosion, plays a tune on his strange little harmonica, which reactivates Jevik's heart, bringing him back to life and causing him to grow in size and hit Superman out of the hotel. Outside, the giant Jevik goes on a rampage, which also spreads the plague throughout Central City. As Jevik starts trashing a local McTavish's, which is basically their version of McDonald's, Superman uses the giant M to knock Jevik down, then to hogtie the giant. With Jevik down, Superman takes a minute to realize that Jevik's rampage could lead to an outbreak so big that many would still end up dying while others are treated. He has an idea of how to prevent this, though, but to do so, he needs, to st he needs some equipment from the JLA satellite. However, when the Action Ace arrives at the satellite, he sees what appears to be the dead bodies of the Flash and Green Lantern. Well, Flash looks dead. Green Lantern's kind of doing an impression of a mummy. But just then, a voice tells Superman that they aren't dead yet, but if he ever wants to see them alive again, he needs to head to the trophy room. Superman recognizes the voice as that of Amalak and crashes through the floor to the trophy room. Below, Amalak explains that he noticed that the star cannon was about to self-destruct and teleported to the JLA satellite before the explosion. But he doesn't explain how he was able to knock out two of the world's greatest superheroes. Thus begins a battle between Superman and Amalak, who is armed with the weapons from the trophy room. While none of the weapons succeed in actually harming Superman, the fight does succeed in keeping Superman busy while his friends are dying. Stunned by that revelation... Amalek is able to use his little harmonica to distort Superman's vision, allowing him to easily avoid Superman's punches. However, one of those punches does make contact with Kanjar Rose Gamma Gong, which knocks out both combatants. Fortunately, Superman comes to first, and takes the opportunity to quickly restore the satellite's life support systems before heading to the science lab to create a tranquilizer powder that he quickly takes down and uses to seed the clouds over Central City, also causing a rainstorm that calms down the city's populace to prevent any more outbreaks. Because at some point, it appears now that when people get all upset is when the and I guess it makes sense because it kind of fits in with the rest of the story, but I don't remember that being a big point. But, you know, any time people start freaking out and get stressed, that's when they start feeling the effects of the disease. So this will calm them down. Anyway, then Superman grabs Jevik, flies him up to space, and gives him a super strong toss that sends the creature back to Tiburon. Why he couldn't do that earlier, I have no freaking clue. When Superman returns to the satellite trophy room, he learns that Amalek is dying. Amalek tells Superman that he hit the, the Gamma Gong too hard and that its vibrations disrupted every cell in his body, meaning that he succeeded in causing Superman to kill, as has been one of his main missions the whole time. But Superman is wise to Amalek's trick. See, while he was reconnecting the life support systems, he noticed that the lights briefly dimmed, as if there had been a power drain, and realized that Amalek used an alien death ray from the trophy room on himself in an attempt to trick Superman. And as Amalak confesses that he did do just that, he passes away. Later, when Superman returns to the monitor room with Amalak's body, he's overjoyed to see that Green Lantern and Flash have found Supergirl drifting out in space unconscious and brought her on board. She offers to take care of Amalak's body so that he can go see Lois, which is an offer he just can't refuse. Soon, Clark Kent visits Lois in the infirmary. Everyone, including our favorite female reporter, have recovered thanks to Namek's horn. 
Everyone, including our favorite female reporter, have recovered thanks to Namek's horn. Glad that she's okay, Clark vows that he won't lose her again and is not going to let her move away from Metropolis without a fight. But her brush with death has made her realize that she loves her life just the way it is, so she won't be moving away. With that, Clark asks, with that, Clark asks her to forget about Superman and proposes marriage. Lois tells him that she'll say yes without any hesitation if he will tell her that Clark Kent is Superman. And despite the caption boxes practically pleading with Clark to forget that the timing is all wrong and just tell her the truth, he tells her he can't and sadly leaves the room, proving to Lois once and for all that Clark Kent and Superman are two different people. And apparently, obviously, she doesn't like her, love her life the way it is. Otherwise, you know, she'd still be dating Clark. Well, that was kind of a bummer ending to the story, but it was an interesting story. Uh, I don't, in fact, I actually liked it so much, I don't have too many notes. So I guess that's a good indication. But first of all, page 11 is where my first note is. Um, what here makes Superman think that Flash and Green Lantern are dead? We have nothing indicating that the life support systems were off, although apparently they were. Flash is just laying there like he's been for the past couple of issues, and Green Lantern is wrapped up like a mummy, which Superman doesn't try to free him. I mean, I don't know. And the coloring wasn't too clear. I don't know if those, if the wrappings were supposed to be yellow or not, but still, I don't know what made him think that they were dead. On page 16, it amazes me that in his few trips to and from space since Amalek's ship exploded, that Superman never noticed the destruction or Supergirl's fl body floating out there. You'd think it'd be kind of obvious for someone with, you know, super speed. Then again, he's been focusing on the satellite, so maybe he didn't notice. Okay, page 17. Okay, so Lois isn't leaving Metropolis, which is great, but... Something that just seems wrong here is that she's only willing to accept Clark's proposal if he says he's Superman. It says a lot about Lois. It makes me wonder why Superman's even bothering with her in the future if she can't look past his powers and love him for who he is on the inside. Then again, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it's... Also trying to get a chance for him to come clean and trust her. Although, apparently this makes her think that it definitely is, that Clark definitely is not Superman. So I'm not sure. It's a little fuzzy there. For now though, that's, that's what I'm thinking is the reason why Clark's so sad as he walks away. Also, I'm not sure I like this characterization for Lois. She really did have strong feelings for the Clark. For the Clark, yeah. For the Clark side. But the Superman thing here makes her look really shallow, in my opinion. I'm just not a fan. Overall, though, I thought this was a pretty great issue, as evidenced by my lack of notes. I really would have liked to have learned about why Amalek changed, but now that he's dead, I don't know that we'll ever get to see that. Then again, it's comics, so he could be back any time. And while the art was great, I do have one gripe. Now, a few episodes ago, Dave and I were actually on together covering a Christmas issue which had art by Rick Buckler. And we were impressed by Buckler's ability to put in a lot of people in the backgrounds and give the city more of a lived-in feeling. 
Now, granted, Buckler is not known for being able to crank out work on a monthly basis all that off often, and Swan was drawing two monthly books at the time of this issue, plus some extras with uh, DC Comics Presents and some other stuff. But there are no more than six people outside in any panel in this issue. Now, maybe the population of Central City is far reduced from Metropolis, but meh. on the plus side, they aren't the same six people all the time, but it kind of kills the whole illusion. Having said that, the art does look beautiful, and they all still look distinctive, so that's awesome, and I'm really digging Atkins' inks over Swan still. But that's one issue down. And after this quick break, well, a break with two promos, we'll take a look at Superman number 315. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to do it. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time, and then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, do, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my... Uh, mm-hmm. call, my it definitely built build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for... Goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers! Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com we now return to superman and the bronze age superman 315 had a cover date of september 1977 and an on sale date of june 6 1977 and a cover price of 35 cents the title of this story is good evening superman i'm clark kent and you're not Written by Marty Pasco, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Dan Adkins, colored by Jerry Serpe, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Way up north, Superman and Supergirl fly to the Fortress of Solitude with Superman carrying Namek, still imprisoned inside of his crystal, well, basically a crystal prison. Inside, Supergirl activates the Phantom Zone projector just as Superman shatters the crystal, allowing the immortal Kryptonian to be sent to the Phantom Zone outside of the crystal. We then learned that before their trip up north, Superman flew Namek all throughout Central City at super speed, exposing everyone to the healing rays of his horn and curing everyone that was exposed to the plague while Jevik was enlarged. Back in the present, Supergirl heads home while Superman decides to take a little bit of time to relax. After all, it's, he's been pretty busy with the crisis in Central City, and with Fayora's debut story over in Action Comics 471 through 474, so he figures it's time for a little R&R. 
Plus the fact that Clark isn't expected back in Metropolis to babysit John Ross until the next evening, which, you know, makes it a little easier decision. So he decides to take a little nap. But just as he closes his eyes, the alarms go off, indicating that Skull agents are operating somewhere. Remember that island out in the West Indies with the volcano that had traces of kryptonite in the lava? Well, that's where the agents are, collecting the cooled magma to be shipped through their kryptonite pipeline. And don't worry, they also explained that this kryptonite had not been turned to iron because it wound up beneath the Earth's surface due to shifts in the Earth's crust. So now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Although their flying skull saucer is lined with lead, Superman is able to use his other powers to determine that there are no other agents on, on board and destroys it using his heat vision to melt the hull and provide a lead coating over their stockpiled kryptonite. Then he lands with enough force to cause a minor earthquake that causes the agents to fall over each other, knocking them all out. Wrapping them up in his cape, the Man of Steel carts them back to Metropolis so that Inspector Henderson can interrogate them. But as he enters the city, he's so focused on his task that he misses the sphere-shaped mass of black particles streaming from the nearby TV transmitter. This doesn't last long, however, because the mass pops up in front of Superman and solidifies into the form of Black Rock, who now has the ability to fly by riding the waves of broadcast signals. Uh, needing both hands free, he tosses his cape and the Skull Agents further up into the sky and dodges the blast from Black Rock's Power Stone while he checks in with his X-ray vision to see that Samuel Tanner, the original Black Rock, is still currently working in his office, which indicates that this is a new Black Rock. As Superman catches the Skull Agents in his cape, he tries to see who is behind Black Rock's mask, but finds his X-ray vision blocked by a lead-lined mask. At the same time, Black Rock allows his Power Stone to pass in front of his face, and somehow, Superman's X-ray vision passing through the Power Stone causes a temporary connection between both men's brains, leaving them both feeling a bit dizzy. But Black Rock recovers first, capturing Superman's cape, removing the criminals inside, then tossing the cape aside and taking them to police headquarters himself, like he had apparently been planning to do all along, leaving Superman to splash into the Metropolis Bay below. We then jump ahead to the next day, where Clark and John are in Clark's locked dressing room. It's locked, because for one thing, Clark's trying to dry out his clothes with a combination of muscle power, and heat vision. And for another, they're talking about how Clark was at the bottom of the Metropolis Bay for 22 hours. See, I think I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, but John learned that Clark is Superman back in Action 457, so this isn't too out of the ordinary. They're allowed to talk like this. Anyway, Clark leaves John in the dressing room while he heads out to do his newscast, and John falls asleep from boredom because he's got nothing else to do, and this is before handheld video games. But he's startled awake by the sound of Morgan Edge as he follows Clark back into his dressing room. Edge has been watching what ABC did by teaming up Barbara Walters with Harry Resner for their network news, and has decided to do the same for WGBS, only better. So come next month, Clark will be sharing the Channel 8 news desk with a woman. And the only thing we find out for certain is that it won't be Lola Barnett, the former GBS gossip queen who left to go to rival UBC. Speaking of Lola, she's about to make her debut on Friday Night Review, the Metropolis version of Saturday Night Live. Backstage, UBC head Samuel Tanner, who we saw earlier, is wondering where his nephew Les is, while his resident inventor, Dr. Peter Silverstone, who also created the original Black Rock, believes he knows exactly where he is. See, Silverstone created Black Rock to give UBC a superhero to rival GBS's Superman. 
Tanner ended up becoming Blackrock without knowing it, but Superman was eventually able to stop Blackrock and make sure that Sam Tanner would never be Blackrock again. But when Tanner started wondering out loud about where Blackrock was, Silverstone figured that it was time for Blackrock to return, this time using his new obsidian picture tube as a more powerful weapon. But this time, he chose Tanner's nephew, Les Vegas. I can't make that name up. Um, yeah, it's Les Vegas. What? Uh, anyway, uh, to be the new Blackrock. Speaking of Vegas, he returns to his dressing room as Blackrock, removes his costume, then dons a blue suit, a latex face mask, and a pair of glasses, and exits his dressing room, thinking he's Clark Kent. Right. Anyway, Tanner spots his nephew and thinks he's putting on an act, but when Vegas takes the stage, he starts just reporting the news. Meanwhile, at 344 Clinton Street, Clark has a dizzy spell, and then starts acting like Les Vegas, including doing his impressions of, of President Ford. After the fake Clark reports about a four-alarm fire, he rips open his shirt in full view of the camera to reveal a Superman costume underneath. John, realizing that he needs to do something before Les removes his glasses and shows people just how much Clark looks like Superman, he rips open the real Clark shirt, revealing his Superman costume, but Clark responds by saying, Oh no, now nah, you've gone and done it, kid. You've discovered my secret identity, and you've learned that I'm Blackrock. Quickly realizing that there's been some kind of an identity switch, John tells Super Blackrock that his enemy Superman is at UBC Studios and to get there as soon as possible. Soon the real Superman is spotted on TV snatching up his double while Lola plays it to the audience uh, while Lola plays it to the cameras and audience as though this was all part of the gag. Meanwhile, in an empty studio, Superman realizes that he is the real steel deal when he sees that they are both in the exact same costume. After a low-intensity burst of heat manages to not only burn away his Superman costume, but also melt the latex mask without, you know, burning Vegas at all, Blackrock comes out of it as well and, his, and hits Superman with a blast from his Power Stone. After a quick battle in which Superman figures out how the identity confusion occurred and that Silverstone must have been responsible, our hero finally gets his hands on the Power Stone and crushes it. No longer under the influence of the Power Stone, Vegas comes to with no knowledge of his time as Blackrock. Hours later, after John Ross has returned home, Superman arrives at the Midtown Star Labs after learning that the Skull Agents had been sent there. Apparently, they had dropped dead at the precinct right after Blackrock turned them in. Using a fluoroscope with a screen made of lead-lined glass, Dr. Clyburn shows Superman that all three men's hearts had been replaced with lumps of kryptonite, leaving Superman and Dr. Clyburn wondering how such an atrocity could be possible. How indeed. We'll find out next issue as the mysteries of Skull, the kryptonite pipeline, and Clark Kent's new co-anchor person deepen. That gives you, well, two weeks, not a month, to guess who's being the heart attack that crippled Superman. Or you could just read the next issue and find out for yourself, but isn't it more fun with some suspense? Anyway, my notes for this issue. Page 4 is where we start this time. And I like that we finally get an explanation for the existence of kryptonite on Earth still. However, I'm thinking that if Skull has enough money to create a skull-shaped flying saucer, criminal activity seems kind of pointless. Then again, we had very much the same thing with Intergang, even in the post-crisis era. 
So what do I know? Page 8. I love the little detail here that Superman's costume is so soaked that we actually see him drying it out by both wringing it out and applying heat vision to it. It's just one of the little things that they don't usually have time to show. The only problem is it's got to stink in that dressing room. I mean, burning water. Well, that's going to heat it up in there too, but the burning water smell. Plus, I mean, he was in the Metropolis Bay for 22 hours. God only knows what's in that water. So, uh, page 11. How did Les get a Clark Kent face mask when he evidently didn't know about the whole identity switch? Granted, I guess it could have been part because of the fact that he was supposed to be doing a Clark Kent sketch anyway, apparently. However, usually these people don't go to all that work to do an impression because you have to be able to take it off really quick to move on to the next skit. So... Yeah, usually it's just a hairstyle change or something. Anyway, uh, page 12. Clark using Les's line, I'm Las Vegas, I'm Les Vegas, and you aren't, is a parody of Ch Chevy Chase's, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not, that he uses to sign off from his weekend update skits on Saturday Night Live, which would have been right around this time. Overall, you know what I liked about this issue? To me, it has a very post-crisis feel to it, mostly because this issue begins with an epilogue to the previous story, ends with a tease for the next story, and we get the introduction of an ongoing subplate subplate, subplot right in the middle that keeps us wanting to come back for more as well. It adds little realism to the stories and makes it feel like we're looking in on someone's life rather than just some made-up stories that take place over a set amount of time. The art still looks great, except when we get close-ups of the faces, there are just too many lines, which works on some of the older characters, especially in this story, like Tanner and Silverstone, but makes Superman look much older than his 29 years. But otherwise, I'm still enjoying Adkins as the inker. Unfortunately, he's only going to be around for two more issues. And then we get someone else, who actually starts off pretty good, and then less so later. But that's for another episode. Next up, J. David Weider presents DC Comics Presents number 18, featuring Superman teaming up with Zatanna. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. Welcome to another edition of Dave Weider Presents, peering into Superman's team-up with the DC Universe at large in the pages of DC Comics Presents. I am David Weider, and this time around we are cracking open the pages of DC Comics Presents number 18, in which Superman teams up with the Mistress of Magic, Zatanna. Zatanna first appeared in the pages of Hawkman number 4 as a legacy character to her father, the legendary magician Zatara, which would appear in the backups of Action Comics. 
Zatanna has the ability to make any magic spell work by simply talking backwards, which is a trick unto itself. Let me show you. See? She became the focal point of a crossover between the Justice League characters and their comics, their individual books, which involved the search for her missing pops. Since then, she's joined the Justice League, carried her own ongoing series, inspired Paul Dini, appeared in Justice League video games, the series Smallville, and may have allegedly mind-wiped her friends by force. So, there, you know, is just something about a woman in fishnets. Right, Black Canary, who's currently appearing on Arrow, which you should be watching? However, the oddity of me saying that is that the fishnet to Zatanna ratio in this issue is, uh, zero. So speaking of this issue, it is the February 1980 issue featuring a cover by Ross Andrew and inked by Dick Giordano, or at least an extension of Dick Giordano. The cover shows Zatanna and Superman in the air, beset by giant birds that look like they may be phoenixes or phoenix eye, I'm not sure what the plural version of phoenix is. But Superman is actually pulling in Aladdin and surfing on a flying carpet because he can't use his powers on account of having Zatanna's skill set. Well that can't be good. The story inside is The Night It Rained Magic, written by Jerry Conway with art by Dick Dillon, and it opens with Superman stopping a bad wreck on a bridge, delaying his trip to the Fortress of Solitude. Unknown to Superman as he takes off, Zatanna and her father Zatara were actually aiding him as they sat in the traffic, and unknown to all of them, a disgruntled stage magician named the Great Caligro stood by and watched it all happen. Caligro, who blames his failures as a stage magician on the Zataras, goes to a bar where he is basically ignored because, well, nobody has any interest in his magic tricks. At the same time, Superman goes to the fortress to work out why magic has such an effect on him and discovers that there is a specific energy signature to magic, which means the Man of Steel can find a way to block it. Meanwhile, Zatanna and her father discuss magic and being descendants in a dimension filled with magic, which is enough to make any reader's head spin. It's kind of like history class where you're bombarded with the lineage of kings. The long and short of it is that there is a dimension filled with magical energy, and that's what Superman spotted, and both Zatanna and Superman try to open a doorway at the same time. This causes a short circuit, and all of the magical energy leaks into our world, granting magic everywhere, while the other dimension deflates like a balloon. This gives Caligro actual magical powers, which he uses to summon the two people who open the gateway, Superman and Zatanna. The rogue magician summons the killer birds from the cover, and when Superman tries to fly a magic carpet, appears. Out of nowhere, because he is infused with magic. Basically, since Superman wasn't born into magic, and since he isn't from this earth at all, he's susceptible to magic more than others. Now normally that's a weakness, and kind of explains why it is which it don't think it needed an explanation. It's magic. There's no logic to it. But this time, because of that susceptibility, it allows Superman to actually gain magical powers, and he uses them to fight Caligro. And Zatanna coaches him on talking backwards, and when Superman repeats after her, Caligro gets defeated. A nice team-up is ensuing, but this is towards the end of the book. So in the end, Zatanna and Superman close the energy leak they created, saving the magic dimension, and everything is put back to normal. And that is the long and short of the issue. So, some thoughts. What the heck did I just read? I mean, I get that Superman and Zatanna teaming up would mean magic and odd things, but an easy 46% of the issue was explaining this. We have Zatanna right from page 2, rambling about how everything is a cosmic play and everyone has a part to play, and then a long scene of Superman spitting out exposition about his vulnerability to magic. Follow that with Zatanna explaining how magic has to be used with somebody with a magician in their ancestry and how it's become diluted. And then there's a magic dimension. Not stopping there, once there is a rupture in the magic dimension, we have a whole page and a half explaining the concept of a leak. A leak. 
I mean, the bulk of this issue is just explaining things over and over again and sometimes re-explaining them. And that is very disappointing from a writer of Conway's caliber. I mean, this is the man that brought us awesome Spider-Man stories, created Firestorm, he's capable of more. And I would give him slack. I mean, Zatanna and magic usually mean a headache for a writer. She has a rich backstory, magic is complicated, I get that. But Conway was the same person that took Zatanna, who wasn't strictly speaking a superhero, and made her a part of the Justice League. The JLA, the creme de la creme of superheroes. I mean, granted, he did that by removing her trademark tuxedo shirt, jacket, and the fishnets, and putting her in a really genuinely horrible outfit with a regrettable headpiece, but all's fair, I guess. The point is, Conway should have a better handle on condensing exposition than what we see here, but nope, lots and lots of talking. So much that the actual confrontation with the issue's villain, you know, the part where the heroes actually team up and do something, runs for only five pages. That's five pages of a 17-page story. And I would actually estimate that ten pages of this is just talking, with seven pages actually moving the plot forward. The saving grace is Dick Dillon on art, which is solid and has a really Gene Colan vibe, which of course I'll dig. The art style is, I wouldn't say dark, it's darkish, but more in the vein of making things look serious and grounded rather than brooding and spooky. And I'll admit, when choosing issues for coverage, I looked forward to this one because I love Zatanna a lot. I have a statue of her, I, I read her entire ongoing series, and I had very little expectation of the issue featuring the Atom. However, as it stands, the last episode that I did had one of the better team-ups in my opinion, and this one was a bit of a bust. And it would have probably benefited from being a two-parter, so we get all the explanation in one issues and then our heroes could, you know, team up. Be heroes, rather than explaining everything that they're about to do by recounting the history of the world. But, who am I to judge? Anyway, not the greatest issue, but it looks like I'm late for monitor duty, so I'm gonna sign off for now and hand the reins back to Mr. Charlie Niemeyer. All right, great job, Dave. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this episode. Join us next time when we take a look at Superman number 316 and 317. Plus, we get another team-up between Superman and one of DC's greatest heroes. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weider. Show notes can be found at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com, as well as links to the RSS and iTunes feeds and more. You can also find the show on Stitcher Smart Radio, as well as Facebook, where you can get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted. Superman of the Bronze Age is a proud member of both the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com and the Comics Podcast Network at www.comicspodcasts.com. Please make sure to check out both sites for more great podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you so much for listening and God bless. Listen to our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Blackberry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio.